college football player. And he had grown up in church, and when he got to college, he started drifting further and further away from God. He knew God here, and remember the things we've been taught about God, but God was not dwelling in his heart. A teammate of his, a people of blinded, was radically changed from hearing the gospel, big or the choice, wanted everybody on campus to know that God had changed his life and Jesus Christ was Lord and Savior of his life. And he wasn't ashamed to share that message. At a student gathering, this 280 pounds of line and stood and shared how Jesus had radically changed him. And he was on fire for God. Warren knew who God was here. He was doing everything he could while in college, while playing college sports, to live out his faith. His teammate, Mark, thought Warren had lost his mind telling everybody that he had been sold out for Christ, knowing that he was putting this target on himself. And the idea that Mark had was that Warren wouldn't be able to live up to it, but everybody was watching him. Everybody was looking to see if he would slip and fall. Well, one night the football players were gathered together playing cards and just being college kids. And got them talking about things. And Mark looked at Ward across the table and called him a fool for doing what he did. For standing in front of the student body and saying, listen, Jesus is my Lord. Mark said, Ward, you're crazy. Why did you do this? Why did you think that you're going to accomplish anything? Because in Mark's mind, Mark knew that to himself he wasn't a bad guy. He didn't drink, he didn't smoke, he didn't do anything wrong. In his mind and his heart, he felt he wasn't a bad guy, and he felt confident that one day he would be going to heaven. But Warren, his teammate who knew Jesus, is watching Mark and realizing that Mark is going down a path that's going to lead him into danger if he's not careful, because Warren himself knew he'd be on that path before accepting Jesus. Christ is Lord and Savior. And that night, as all the teammates are together and they're playing cards, Warren looks across the table at Mark and makes this statement. Ackerman, you're going straight to hell and you're going to be the first one in line. Well, Mark was a little taken back. And Mark started to bow up and he realized he weighs 180 pounds. Warren weighs 280. And Warren's going to win a fight. So Mark goes back to his dorm room and he's really disturbed by what his friend has told him. And he pondered these things and he thought about these things. And after a little while, he realized that Warren was true. That Warren had spoken truth to his life. Later that night, alone in his dorm room, Mark made the decision to ask Jesus Christ to be the Savior of his life. Warren and Mark are now in ministry in different places. But it took someone looking at a friend and saying, listen, you're going to hell because you don't know Jesus Christ. So it made me think about a question this morning. How do you respond to confrontation? How do you handle confrontation? When somebody stands in front and says, listen, you're not doing the right thing. How do you respond? How do you handle it? How do you deal with it? Do you deal with it with humility and repentance? Or do you react in anger? You get so mad at the person that you're not mad about them confronting you. You're upset with the person who is confronting you. You get so angry and frustrated that you ask that person to never talk to you again. To never call you, to never speak to you. But what about when you have to confront somebody? What about those times when you need to know that friend, you need to know that family member, and confront them about the decisions they are making, when you've been the one confronting, have you ever looked back with regret? Have you thought to yourself, maybe you should have done something a little bit different? Do you look back and think that maybe I should have spent some more time praying before talking about the situation? Because we are as humans, and listen, confrontation is necessary. Do we like confrontation? No. But confrontation is necessary. And for believers in Jesus who have been born again, confrontation should result in humble repentance, sincere apologies, and a strengthened relationship. We need to be 
confronted when we are doing things that are contrary to what God has called us to do? Do we like to be confronted? No. I show a hand. How many of you like being told you're wrong? Thank you. Don't raise your hand. And how many of you like pointing out something else that they're wrong? But confrontation is scriptural. Confrontation is something that we see. Because listen, when you're confronted with sin, then you are convicted about that sin. And you should be brought back to repentance. Because you and I worship a God who is merciful. You and I worship a God who loves us enough that He sent His sons to die for your sins. That's how much God loves you. And that's how much God is willing to confront you when you do things contrary to His word. But we see this in Scripture. We know He is merciful. Take a copy of God's Word for just a moment. Turn over to Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12. And notice what the writer of Hebrews says about this. About what happens when we experience confrontation. Hebrews chapter 12, starting in verse 5. Scripture says, And you have forgotten the exhortations which speaks to you as to sons. My son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord, nor be discouraged when you are rebuked by him. For whom the Lord loves, he chastens and scourges every son whom he receives. If you're not willing to be confronted, then you and I are refusing God's love. When you're not willing to be confronted for the sin you're struggling with, for the sin you're wrestling with, not only are you refusing God's love, you're rejecting His kindness to you. If I'm not willing to be confronted for the sin in my life, why am I going to allow Father in Heaven to allow His Son to die for my sins? It's all about being in right standing with the Father. And if I'm not allowed, if I'm not allowed to be confronted, if I'm not willing to be confronted, I'm refusing His love. I'm refusing His kindness. And in reality, I'm setting a roadblock between me and God's love. I'm setting a roadblock for what God has for me and what God wants for me in my life. But if, but if we respond in humility, if we respond with confronted, if we are willing to invite people to pour into our lives, to speak into our lives when they're concerned about us, that opens the way for God love to come to us, for God to show us His kindness, and for God to lead us into repentance. Because if we treat confrontation as an affront to the person confronting us, then it makes us proud, it makes us arrogant, and it makes us harder and harder to receive the correcting we need in our lives. I think about that conversation between Mark and Warren. Warren sees the path Mark is going down and says, it doesn't sugarcoat it. Notice that. He doesn't sugarcoat it. He flat out says, Mark, you're going to be going to hell. You're the first in line. That's a little strong. And let's be honest, if somebody said it to us, we might be inclined to want to him. Because we don't like being told that we're wrong. We don't like being told that we're outside the will of the Father. And if we become hard-hearted, if we become standoffish to the point where we're not willing to let people pour into our lives, we may get to the point where people don't feel like they can talk to us. People can't come to us when they see us hurting, when they see us struggling, and they can't pour into our lives. This morning we're going to learn in this last chapter of Nehemiah that Nehemiah is going to be confronting a similar situation when the people of Judah need to be corrected in a number of areas. In every area they need to be corrected, it's connected with an issue to them being a people of God. Remember, we have learned over the course of the study that God has set aside the people of Israel as His people. God has chosen Jerusalem as His place of worship where His name is going to be known. So there's some things that people need to remember. Over in Exodus chapter 19, we read these words. Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, 
then you shall be a special treasure to me above all people, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words which you shall speak to the children of Israel. God considered the people of Judah as his possession. Out of all the nations in the world, the people of Judah were his possession. They're the ones he cared about. They're the ones he loved. They're the ones he held close to his heart. That scripture says they would be a kingdom of priests. It says they would be a holy nation unto God. They would be a kingdom of servants for God and a nation devoted to God. But then God also says in Leviticus chapter 20, verse 26, And you shall be holy to me, for I, the Lord, am holy, and have separated you from the people that you should be mine. Believing that living in obedience to God's word was the only path of blessing for the people of God, Nehemiah cares enough for those people and enough for their reputation to take action no matter how personally difficult it's going to be. Remember, Nehemiah had been reminding them that's why they opened the book of the law. You are a chosen people. You are God's children. You are God's possession. Last week we left with the dedication of the walls. But then we looked a little bit into chapter 13. And they read from God's word and they would be separated from the foreigners. Separated from the Ammonites and the Moabites. And that's where we ended last week. And thinking about this commitment that Nehemiah has for the people. There are two observations I want to show you. There are two uncompromising truths that Nehemiah is reminding the people today. And here's the first one. Spiritual leaders need to live holy lives dedicated to the service of God and those coming to worship God. Those in position of authority, those who are spiritual leaders, are to live a life that is holy. Does that mean they are perfect? No. Newsflash, I am not perfect. And I never will be. I am human. But there's a responsibility for me and for anyone else in this room who is a leader in this church that you're to live a life that is holy, a life that is dedicated to serving God and for those who are coming to learn under us. But there's a second truth that Nehemiah has to remind them. They can't be compromised and it's this. The people need to reject the path of sin and provide for the needs of the spiritual leaders. There needs to come a time when people reject the path that leads to the sin, that leads them away from God, but also to be an encouragement to those of spiritual leadership that they don't follow the path that leads to sin, the path that puts them further and further from God. This morning, we are ending our study in the book of Nehemiah. You want to go ahead and take your Bibles, turn to Nehemiah chapter 13. You should know where the book of Nehemiah is because we've been here for 13 weeks. For some of you, it just opens right to it right now. But in Nehemiah, we're going to see where Nehemiah has been gone for a while. Scripture is going to tell us that he has gone back to King Artaxerxes to serve as his cupbearer. We're going to learn that 12 years has passed from when Nehemiah came to before he left to go back to King Artaxerxes. But we're going to learn that while Nehemiah is away, the people are doing what God has called them to do. The people are not doing what Nehemiah has encouraged them to do. So when Nehemiah comes back to Jerusalem, he is compelled to correct them. He is compelled to put them back on the path that leads them back to the things of God. And he's to remind them that they, these people are a holy people. These people are a holy people. Because they are the representation of God the Father to the nations that surround them. As we read through this chapter this morning, I want to remind you that as you read and study Scripture, you read Scripture to learn, but you also read Scripture to apply to your life. Because we all are guilty of knowing who God is, having God as the center of our 
Some may take a few steps. Some may go a couple miles before they realize that they're on a path they have no business being on. And God puts someone in their life to push them back into the right direction. This morning, what you're going to see if you're looking at your outline, that all this is about holiness. It's the holiness of God, but it's also the holiness of the people who are worshiping God. Holiness means, this first one, means being faithful in the responsibilities God has given. Holiness means being, being faithful in the responsibilities God has given. Nehemiah chapter 13, beginning in verse 4. We read these words, and I'll be honest with you. As you're reading these words, these words are going to be disturbing. Because you're thinking the people have watched God do all these great things. He's rebuilt the walls. He brought the people back to the city. We have a purpose. We have a plan. We have a desire to worship a Father in heaven who has brought us out of captivity and chosen us as his people. But notice what happened starting in verse 4, chapter 13. Now before this, Elijah the priest having authority over the storeroom of the house of God was allied with Tobiah. And he prepared for him a large room where previously they had stored the grain offering, the frankincense, the articles, the tithes, the grain, and the new wine and oil, which were commanded to be given to the Levites and singers and gatekeepers and the offerings for the priests. But during all of this, I was not in Jerusalem, for in the 32nd year of King Artaxerxes, King of Babylon, I have returned to the king, then after certain days, I obtained leave from the king. And I came to Jerusalem and discovered that evil that Elijah had done for Tobiah in preparing a room for him in the courts of the house of God, and it grieved me bitterly. Therefore, I threw all of the household goods of Tobiah out of the room. Then I commanded them to cleanse the room, and I brought back into them the articles of the house of God with the grain offering and the frankincense. Between verses 3 and 4, Nehemiah goes back. Because he already promised him in chapter 2 of Nehemiah, he already promised him our Xerxes, let me go and I will come back. And he came back after 12 years serving as governor of Jerusalem. He's come back to Babylon, come back to King Artaxerxes, come back to serving him. You saw that in verse 4, verse 5, rather. It says that after a little while, verse 6, he obtained the lead. But look what happened between 4 and 5 to get to 6. The priest, Elijah, the priest has taken it upon himself to allow Tobiah to move in. Now paint this picture for just a moment. Imagine, imagine if you came back next Sunday morning and I had removed all the pews, taken the pulpit out of here, removed the altar table, and I had in that corner a dining room, in this corner a living room, and over here a bedroom suite, and we'll put something else in the corner, and I had allowed worst person in the world to live here. Taking up the thing to God. God would be mad, wouldn't you? I see a little bit of head shake, but I don't think I'm making mad. But here's what happened. Elisha, the priest, had removed every article of worship. Again, you see the list here in verse 5. Look at the list and everything that was removed. Everything was taken away. Oh, by the way, things that were for the priest and the Levites and the gatekeepers was also missing in the midst of all of this. So Tobiah has taken a shop in the quarters that are designed for the worship leaders to be living in, for the priests to be living in. We see this. Now remember, we met Tobiah back in Nehemiah chapter 4. He's one of the guys making fun of Nehemiah and brought the town to rebuild the wall. This is the same man that said, hey, you're doing a great job, Nehemiah. Why don't we get together and talk about it when their plan was to kill him? Over in Nehemiah chapter 6, Tobiah joined Sam Ballot and others to frighten the people, to make the people 
And the people, the leaders, have forgotten what's to be done. And it's almost as if this priest to the Most High God has had the audacity to take everything of importance for worship and moved it out of the way. Look at what he got rid of. Again, I go show you the scripture. The grain offering, the frankincense, the tithe of grain, the new wine and oil. All that's gone. And oh, by the way, part of that's supposed to be given to these worship leaders, and it's missing too. So all this has taken place, and all this has gotten so bad. We're going to jump ahead and look at verse 10. It has gotten so bad. According to verse 10, the last part of the verse, it says, Each of the Levites and the singers who did the work had gone back to his field, had gone back to his land to try to provide for his family that which was already being provided through the temple. Now we look at Tobiah. Now remember this. Tobiah is married to a Jewish woman. He is not Jewish. He's married to a Jewish woman. So this is a man who has influence. And now he has set up residency in the temple to give up even more prominence, to give more standing to those in Jerusalem and potentially even a better financial benefit. And also remember, Tobiah is an Ammonite. Go back to Nehemiah 13, verse 3. Who's supposed to be separated from the people of God? Who's to be separated? Those of that finding. Verse 1, the Ammonites and the Moabites shouldn't be together with the people of God, the children of God. Yet this priest has no excuse. This priest has allowed this man to come in and set up shop. And we cannot overlook Nehemiah in what he says. Because look at it. Look at verse 8. It said, it grieved me bitterly. It grieved me bitterly that this foreigner has come into the house of God and made it his home. And I love what that verse says. It says, not only did it grieve him, but again, look at verse 8. I threw all of the household goods out. Spring cleaning came early for Tobiah by the way of Nehemiah. But then Nehemiah even has to command them, look at verse 9, he has to command them to cleanse the rooms, to read. Purify the rooms. Here's the reminder. Yes, Nehemiah is concerned about the ritual purity of the space, just as he is concerned about the moral purity of God's people. The structure is important. Yes, what takes place in the structure is more important. Yes, there are rituals that are done in the house of God. But there's also a moral purity that must take place in the house of God. And I did not put this in your outline, but I'm fixing to share with you because I knew some of you, if I shared these next few things with you, we would have had two inserts in the bulletin. And somebody would have said something. So, let me show you seven observations just from the first, these first few verses. Let me give you seven observations from verses 4 through 9. Again, I have things in your bulletin, but they may be worth making a note or two about. Number one, compromising relationships usually lead to more compromise. If I'm willing to compromise here, who's to say I won't compromise there? And it's a trickle-down effect. It's a domino effect. Number two, personal concerns and relationships must not supersede one's obedience to God's word. Too many times, too many times, we want to put everything else ahead of God. We want to put our joys, our pleasures, our lives, our wishes, our wants ahead of what God's word tells us about certain things. As much as I love my wife, as much Oh. 
concerning this, and do not wipe out my good deeds that I have done for the house of God and for its services. The house of God had been neglected. Things were not being done. Elijah was more focused on making Tobiah happy and forgetting about those who were serving God, those who had been called to lead. And when the spiritual life of leaders diminishes because of sin or carelessness, God's provision for his work also decreases. Think about that. When spiritual leaders, when they are diminished in their capacity because of sin or even carelessness, then the work God is doing also decreases. Again, God working in a particular place is not about the person that God has put there, but the reason God has put the person there is to help lead and guide and direct and pour into others as God pours into him. So Nehemiah has to reprimand those in charge for not only the spiritual neglect, but the physical neglect of God's service as well. And their spiritual failure is influencing the people around them along the same path. Remember, when Nehemiah came back the first time, his concern was much more than about rebuilding the walls. If you go back to Nehemiah chapter 1, his concern was not as much about the walls, about the reproach of the people, of the sin of the people. Now imagine Nehemiah's surprise. He leaves everything really good, he thinks. Goes back to King Artaxerxes, then after a little while comes back to Jerusalem and finds that the spiritual leaders are neglecting the house of God and doing exactly what they promised to do. Remember, they all signed that oath. Back in chapter 12, chapter 11, rather, they signed that oath. We're going to do these things. We're going to serve God. We're going to worship God. They put their name on that paper in front of everyone saying, this is a solemn oath to God in heaven that he is in control and we're going to follow him. But again, Nehemiah leaves comes back and they neglect everything they promised to do. They're neglecting the faithfulness and supporting the house of God. And now they're on the spiritual drift, moving away from the devotion of God and away from holiness. And it is amazing how drastically things can change in our lives, either good or bad, when we also drift from the things of God. But as I read this chapter and this section of Scripture, Nehemiah is a testament to this Again, go back to chapter 1 in your minds. When he hears about the walls, in verse 4 of chapter 1, it said he was grieved. He cried. He was in heartache and hurting because of the condition of the city. But remember what God did? God provided for Nehemiah a way to leave a heathen king who rejected the things of God, got support from that king, goes back a hundred miles back to Jerusalem to rebuild the wall, to rejuvenate a downcast people, to overcome enemies, overcome obstacles in a short time, and remove debris from around the city, rebuild the walls of Jerusalem, and the people experience spiritual renewal because they were no longer under the reproach of the nation. God did amazing things for the people, but a life of a life of faith requires action. Too many times we try to live by this statement. Yesterday's, let me think my mind, I'm afraid to write so it's going to There's a saying, faith requires diligence. You have to work at it. That means I can't sit on the sideline and expect God to do things in my life. And I found this statement. It says, yesterday's victories do not suffice for today's challenges. Yes, we can stand on the promises of God, but I can't go back to promises from years ago to what's happening now. Every one of us can raise our hand and you can share with me a time when you've had victory over 
about something, what God has done about something in your life. Whether physical, whether financial, whatever the case may be, every one of us can raise our hand and say, listen, I know when God did this in my life, that too many times we still dwell on the past victories. We think, well, God did it then, so I can, that's, that's enough for me. We want God to be new in our life every day. We want Him to change our life every day. I can't stand on past victories. I can't stand on past wins. Where I see God do something great and to say, listen, that is sufficient for me. And here's why you can't stand on past victories to get you through the day. Here's the reminder. The enemies of the faith, the enemies of the world, Satan, and our own sinful nature, nature will continue to destroy what God has done in your and my life. And no matter how many wonderful things you've experienced, how many wonderful things you have witnessed God do in the past, you've got to be ready for the present and the future. Not about what happened last week, last month, or last year. A life of faith be marked with humility. A life of faith to drive us to God's word. A life of faith to draw us to our knees and pray for the Holy Father because we are totally dependent on God and Jesus Christ in the right I am not dependent on the man who sits in the White House. I'm not dependent on the man who sits in the chair in the mansion of the governor in Atlanta. I'm not dependent on the man who sits in the chair of the mayor of Reedsville. But too many times we learn to put our dependence in things other than God. And when we do that, it's a lack of humility. It's a lack of trusting God. And that's the circumstance that Nehemiah finds here in Judah. He finds a people who should know better, a people who should be trusting God, who have decided, listen, we like God, but we're not sure about all this. So we're going to go back to how we're doing it. Because of memory recalls, if you go back to chapter 12, Remember what happened when the two choirs were singing? Everybody around heard the sound of rejoicing. All the other nations could hear what was taking place in Jerusalem. But now, Nehemiah has come back the headache and heartache and a little bit cravings. And you can't understand what's going on. You've been this to God to be holy, but you're choosing not to be holy. And even in this section of Scripture, there are some observations I want to give you about this section of Scripture. And I promise from this point forward, there are not going to be as many observations. But I couldn't get past this. I couldn't get past what Scripture was saying here. Because we saw that first part about what happens when we're not being responsible for God, what God has done in our lives. But then what happens here? What happens here when you and I are not giving and supporting what God is already doing in my life and your life? Here are the thoughts as I read these verses, 10 through 14. Number one, sin is never an isolated incident. It always affects others. There is no sin only unto oneself. Sin affects everyone. But here's another reminder in this passage of Scripture. Spiritual leaders cannot do God's work if they are not supported by the people of God. Spiritual leaders can't do what God's called to do if the people of God aren't supporting them, if the people of God are not encouraging them. Listen, I am thankful. I can say with boldness and assurance, I am thankful because every one of you has always been an encouragement to me and my family. Every one of you has supported me and my family. I have never felt or thought that I can't do it because the people aren't supporting, aren't believing what God is trying to do here. I don't have to worry about this, but I have friends who wrestle with this. I have friends that are serving in different churches who are struggling with this and they're not being supported by the people of God. Number three, generally speaking, the sins of the people of God frustrate the work of the people of God. If there's sin within the people of God, it slows down the work of what God is doing. Number four, after Nehemiah reprimands the leaders, the people begin bringing their tithes once again. It was Nehemiah who had to rebuke the leaders. It was Nehemiah who had to get them all together and had 
Number six, number five, right? Five, five or six, five, thank you, Truett. Wisdom calls for selecting reliable people to see God's work, even if it requires replacing the unreliable. Elijah was replaced because he was unreliable. We read in verse 4 that he's a priest. He's the one interceding on God the Father on behalf of the people, but he's not doing his job. Now listen. If Elijah had repented, if Elijah had ever said, God, I am wrong for what I've done, it'd be different. But nowhere in chapter 13 do we ever see Elijah repent of what he has done. And because of what he's done, he's lost the confidence of the people because he has shown himself to be unreliable and has lost their trust in trying to rebuild what God is doing there. And this is in your outline, though. Wherever there is sin, there is loss. Wherever there is sin, there is loss. Restoration to one's fellowship with God through confession and forgiveness of sin does not necessarily guarantee the restoration to the circumstances that were in place before the sin. Let's regard the thing for just a moment. God clothed them and God kicked them out of the garden because of sin. Even though God clothed them, He didn't change them. And notice this, wherever there is sin, there is loss. Eve eats the fruit. She loses what's going to take place in the garden of Eden. Adam sinned because of Eve. And they're both removed. And because of their sin, he now wrestles with death. It was never going to be part of the equation until that sin showed up. But God did restore them. But God did not forget about the word of because where there is sin, there is loss. For them was the loss of their last life on that side. But for you and for me, for Jesus, that for us, we have the opportunity to experience everlasting life. Number six, God's holy people are expected to be devoted to God's holy work. There's an expectation there about what God is doing and how God is working. But for you and for me, number seven, personally, One's highest priority in life should be to glorify and please God. My motive should be to please God. Nehemiah's motive was to please God. Go back to verse 14. He cries out, Remember me, O God. Remember me, O God, concerning these things, what I have done for you. Nehemiah's desire, Nehemiah's desire, is to stand before God the Father and hear these words, well done, good and faithful servant. That's what Nehemiah is doing all this for. He's not doing it for a pat on the back. Nehemiah doesn't do all this to stand here and say, look at me, look what I did. He always points back to what God is doing and what God has done for him and through him. A few more thoughts we're going to hit the ground running. Here we go. Number three, holiness means keeping holy that which God has made holy. Keeping your holiness means keeping that what has been made holy by God. The scripture talks all about this. And I want to give you three scripture references to write down if you're a, a note-taker real quick. We're not going to look at all three because time's not going to permit me this morning. We're going to look at one of them and I'm going to give you all three references. Here we go. Under this holiness that God makes holy. Exodus 28 through 11. Exodus 20, 8 to 11. Isaiah 58, 13 through 14. So the first one is Exodus 28 to 11. Isaiah 58, 13 through 14. And then Ezekiel, Ezekiel 20, 12 through 14. And for our time this morning, go ahead and turn to Ezekiel chapter 20 for just a minute. This idea of holiness, teaching things holy, which God has made holy. Ezekiel chapter 20, verse 12. Moreover, I gave them my Sabbath to be a sign between them and me, that they might know that I am the Lord who sanctifies them. Yet the house of Israel rebelled against me in the wilderness. They did not walk in my statutes. They despised my judgment. 
which if a man does, he shall live by them, and they greatly defile my Sabbath. Then I said, I would pour out my fury on them in the wilderness to consume them. But I added for my name's sake that it should not be profaned before the Gentiles in those sight I have brought them out. So why worry about the Sabbath? Oh, I'm fixing to get people upset here. Now stay with me for a second. That which is holy. Go back to Nehemiah 13. Look at me starting in verse 15. Verse 15. In those days I saw people in Judah spreading wine presses on the Sabbath and bringing in the sheaves and loading donkeys with wine, grapes, figs, and all kinds of burdens, which they brought into Jerusalem on the Sabbath day. I warned them about that day on which they were selling provisions. Men of fire dwelt there also and brought fish and all kinds of food and sold them on the Sabbath to the children of Judah and in Jerusalem. Then I contended with the nobles of Judah and said to them, What evil thing is this that you do by which you profane the Sabbath day? Did not your fathers do thus? And did not our God bring all this disaster on us and on this city? Yet you bring added wrath on Israel by profaning the Sabbath. So it was at the gate of Jerusalem as it began to be darker for the Sabbath that I commanded the gate to be shut and charged that they must not be opened until after the Sabbath. Then I posted some of my servants at the gate so that no burdens would be brought in on the Sabbath day. Now the merchants and sellers of all kinds of wares lodged outside Jerusalem once or twice. Then I warned them and said to them, Why do you spend the night around the wall? If you do so again, I will lay hands on you. From that time on, they came no more on the Sabbath. And I commanded the Levites that they should cleanse themselves and that they should go and guard the gate to sanctify the Sabbath day. The law and the prophets declare how essential it is to God that Israel remembers the Sabbath and keeps it holy. That's why we read that verse in Ezekiel. But that's why Nehemiah has to step in. Now he's got to kick someone out of God's house. Now he's got to get people out of town who are selling everything under the sun on the Sabbath. Because instead of making it a holy day, they turned it into a flea market and a fresh food market on the same day. How many of you remember, and I'm going to date myself here, because in Louisiana back in the 1930s, we had something called a blue wall. Did y'all have that in Georgia? The blue wall was nothing was open on Sundays. Nothing. If you need to catch up, you better get it on Saturday. There was nothing open. And I remember growing up in North Louisiana, we went Saturday night until the doors were closed, I was getting it, but it didn't get on Sunday. There was nothing over on Sunday. But do you remember what happened? And I don't know about much for Georgia, but I remember when that was lifted in Louisiana, when they got rid of the blue law. When they got rid of the blue law, we thought it was Christmas morning on Sunday. And I'm thinking, okay, we already had I don't know what kind of person Nehemiah was. I don't know how good he'd be to fight. 
I felt isolated. Felt like a man of Ireland. He's trying to do the things God has called him to do. He's trying to lead a people to do the things God has called him to do. He's trying to remind them to trust God in his faithfulness, to trust God in his covenant faithfulness, in his steadfast love. And I wonder if he feels like that man who's trying as best as he can and nobody's attention. Nobody wants to listen. He's trying to remind them that God is a holy God. God is a God of mercy, a God of justice, a God who loves us. Yet all these things are taking place. And it has a frustrating, but it drives them to pray, God, remember me. But then there's the fourth thing that Nehemiah has to remind them. Holiness means shunning anything that would damage our devotion to God. Nehemiah's going to remind them about intermarrying with other nations and how the damage had been done back in 1 Kings and 2 Kings when Solomon was marrying foreign wives to make peace agreements with foreign countries. And not only did he marry these foreign wives, but he built altars to their gods to worship. And that's what led the people of Judah to be thrown into slavery in Babylon because their king was not focused on the things of God. The king who was a son of David, a man of God's own heart, the man who rebuilt the temple, who built the first temple, because remember the temple was a tent until David's day. And David wanted to rebuild the temple. God said, no, you can't do it your son of so Solomon builds this temple to worship God, but then he profanes the name of God by doing everything under the sun that was contrary to God's